Welcome to the Economics Explored podcast, a frank and fearless exploration of important economic issues. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. I'm a professional economist and former Australian Treasury official. The aim of this show is to help you better understand the big economic issues affecting all our lives. We do this by considering the theory, evidence, and by hearing a wide range of views. I'm delighted that you can join me for this episode. Please check out the show notes for relevant information. Now on to the show. Dave Belvedere, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Excellent, Dave. Uh, Joined by Tim Hughes, of course. Tim, good to have you here too. Hey, Gene. Good to be here, mate. And Tim, thanks for introducing me to Dave, who uh, is involved in crypto. And crypto Mm. is something that Tim and I have chatted about before, and we're conscious that we need to know more about it. We're at a certain level of understanding of it, and it'd be good to increase that understanding. So to kick off with, Dave, could you talk about your involvement with crypto, please? Yeah. So I'm. Um, what I do is I'm classified as a searcher within cryptocurrency. Uh, so a searcher is somebody who looks for opportunities to make the market more efficient. So one of the, the classic examples is arbitrage. So when somebody adds uh, a cryptocurrency to one side of a pool, so pools get created by automatic market makers, which we can talk about in a sec. Yeah. Um, yeah, so if they add, say, you know, 20,000 ETH to one side of the pool and the other side of the pool holds USDT, um, then there's an offset of the balance of how much USDT costs versus what the general market says. Sorry, Dave, USDT is? Ah, it's uh, Tether. So, um, sorry, yeah, the <laughs> so it's UST is, is Tether. Um, it's backed by um, sort of the, the organization that runs it to maintain a... Um, level pegging against the US dollar. So it's one-to-one to to the US dollar. Okay. Um, So there's a couple of coins like that that are referred to as stable coins. Um, So this is within Ethereum, um, uh, which is USDT and USDC, so US coin, um, but it's not the US market coin. So it's not connected to the the US government at all. Okay. So ETH is Ethereum? ETH is Ethereum. Okay. And then you'll have BTC, which is Bitcoin. Yeah. And... Is there a simple way to explain the difference between Ethereum and Bitcoin? Yeah, um, in essence, they're they're cryptocurrencies. So it's cryptocurrency really is just um, a digital asset that's backed by a cryptographic hashing algorithm. Digital asset is is something just like a bank account or something like that. So mm. yeah, we we see it every day. Yeah, technically, all all Australian dollars when you start to pay with your credit card, that's really just a digital asset. Um, in this case, it's a digital asset that is then secured by cryptography. So um, when you go visit the bank, you'll usually see HTTPS, that S stands for secure, and that's backed by um, cryptography. So Mm. same sort of mechanism. And in in this regard, when we talk about Bitcoin and Ethereum, they're actually two independent cryptocurrency chains. So they're not really connected together. And what that means is that they operate a little differently. So Bitcoin uh, was was the first one. It came out around 2009, so a lot of people would have heard it because, uh, yeah, the, the market valued it quite quite hugely. Uh, I think a couple of years ago, it was up to like 80,000 US, mm-hmm. uh, 80,000 Australian, yeah. um, and it's come back down now. But yeah, it has gained a lot of popularity. So when we get into a chain, there's a couple of things when we talk about what a chain is. So we would have all heard of the classical blockchain, and that's what sort of secures. Bitcoin and Ethereum. Uh, so a blockchain is really a, um, a append-only ledger. We've probably always, always heard it. So transactions just get added and you can't go back and modify the transactions. 
Uh, and one way, um, well, the, the guarantee for that is the consensus mechanism that gets used. So let's just say I make a couple of transactions on, on Bitcoin. So I'm sending some Bitcoin to somebody else. That transaction gets added to a block. Um, so there can be many transactions or none in a block. Yeah, uh, and then that block then goes through um, or gets consensus with the rest of the network. So one of the differences, or the, I guess sort of the big differences with blockchains, is that for most of the blockchains, they're distributed uh, systems. So nodes all around the world make up the actual blockchain. So there's no one entity that can control. The blockchain itself. So this is the decentralized term when when it's used. This is what they what they mean by that. Yeah, yeah. So it's sort of like you can shut down, say, everything in the US, but the yeah. chain will still operate because you know it's in Europe, it's in Asia, it's in Australia. Uh, so you can't really shut the chain down. And is that just on that subject? Is that one of the uh, reasons that so much energy is needed for a transaction? Is that uh, where that consumption comes in? To a, to a degree, um, there's a couple of things that will maintain the security of the blockchain. So, um, a couple of blockchains. So, in this case, Bitcoin itself is actually vulnerable to a degree to the uh, 51% attack. Um, so, when we talk about distributed systems, it's if you control most of those systems, you can do whatever you want in the system, mm. uh, which is classified as the 51% yeah. so, I haven't heard that term before. So so if I control 51% of all miners, and let's just say yeah. in Bitcoin, then I can make any transaction valid because I control the majority. Yeah. Um, the consensus mechanism that gets used is always a majority. If the most of the nodes agree that this transaction is valid, it's valid. And there's no going back once that transaction's once done. Once that transaction's been committed, uh, there's there is a, a couple of nuances to that. So you can challenge a block if it hasn't been finalized. Um, but for the most part, we you know you can always just assume as soon as that transaction gets committed into a block and it's on the blockchain, it's there forever. Yeah, but because it's so decentralized and there are so many thousands or I don't know how many ten thousands, tens of thousands of people around the world who are. They're mining or whatever they're doing. Mm. They're overseeing this, or they've got a stake in it. Then the probability of having that fifty-one percent attack is extremely low, isn't it? Yeah, you need sort of a lot of lot of materials and a lot of money, honestly, to get to that point. Yeah. So when something's small, obviously it's quite yeah. easy. But yeah, um, given its vast sort of popularity and its nature, yeah, it gets gets very hard. Um, and yeah, so the yeah, it's it's extremely hard to try and try and get that. And a bunch of there's a collection, so you might not be able to create the blocks. So when we when we talk about these miners, yeah, um, uh, something to, to I guess sort of to lead up to is why miners are necessary in Bitcoin now and previously in Ethereum mm. is that they are looking for the next block, so they're trying to get consensus on a block. Yeah. So when somebody commits a transaction, it doesn't get added to the blockchain automatically. It goes to the miners, and what they're doing is running the consensus algorithm. So the algorithm is just really cryptographic hash, and what it includes is um, the hash of the header of the previous block plus all the transactions plus a random number. And what they're trying to do is run that hash it such that they get a viable block. You know, the block is valid in accordance to the consensus algorithm. That is where all the power is spent, all that time, because you're running um, a 
cryptographic algorithm, which is usually quite computationally heavy Yeah, um, in the best of times. And they're trying to beat everyone to the block because if you create a block, you get a reward for it. So you might get one Bitcoin or something like that. So it is viable to try and create as many blocks as you can to get those rewards. That's the um, the reward for being a miner, is that right? Then That's so. the reward for creating a block. You right, could okay. spend all your time mining, not create a block and... Get nothing. Get nothing. <laughs> yeah. So wow. one of the things that they've done, because uh, obviously that sort of starts to lean towards people with more money, more resources, can deploy more things, uh, is they've created these mining pools such that you can contribute to the pool uh, and it might make up, say, 25% of the network. Um, and then if the pool itself creates a block, you get a, you get a little piece of that based off of you know, how much you contribute to the pool. Quick quick question uh, with that. So with the, um, the people who don't uh, manage to mine the, uh, the block, mm. is that part of the, uh, the excessive uh, amount of energy needed for a transaction? Because it's basically wasted energy. They, they yeah. resource, it's a bit like an Olympic bid or how it used to be. Yeah, yeah, so all that yeah. money spent was for nothing because it went to wherever. Somebody else, yeah. Yeah, and yeah so, so they're, they're basically, you know, running these things as quick as they can, and they might get beaten by nanoseconds. Yeah. And, and how long would a transaction normally take, roughly? Um, so it depends on the, on the chain being used. I think uh, at the moment with uh, Bitcoin, because they've, like, they've mined so much, it takes um, you know, tens of minutes to actually create a new block. In Ethereum, they switched from proof of work, the consensus of proof of work, which is what Bitcoin still operates on, uh, to proof of stake, uh, which is um, less computational heavy consensus mechanism. And it also, you can argue it distributes through the miners a lot cleaner too. And they're fairly quick um, So compared to, to Bitcoin. So they, they generate a new block, I think, every second pretty much uh, and the transactions that get included are just transactions there because yeah this sorry gene because this is something like yeah last year wasn't it when ethereum so this is the change that they did where yeah. they i think it's only 10 percent, or is it like a 90 percent reduction 99.9 oh wow okay of their power use which is there. enormous i mean yeah, that's because yeah, yeah. that was the we, we talked about it before yeah, with yeah. the outrageous amount of energy mm. spent and to hear it there, like it is completely wasted energy. Like it's not necessary for that transaction, so it's wasted energy. Yeah. So Ethereum have made this quantum leap, basically, to to make it far more efficient. Yeah, pretty well efficient in terms of memory. Uh, uh, sorry, in terms of power. Yeah. Um, like the the consensus. So proof of stake. Um, the way it works is like a scheduler just goes, "You're going to create the next block," and so only one person is effectively going. Here are the valid transactions. And pushes the block out. You still got validators that will be like, "That's a good job or challenge to to do it." So I, I guess sort of the little difference between uh, proof of work and proof of stake as the consensus mechanisms. Proof of work is just really run like find that cryptographic hash match. Proof of stake is um, you put up X amount of capital uh, for this. In this case, it's thirty two ETH, which is about eighty thousand US uh, eighty thousand Australian. Um, and you say, I will behave correctly and properly. Um, and if I generate a block, you, you get sort of the rewards for that. Now, in order to avoid bad actors or just somebody coming in with a massive amount of ETH and being like, I'm just going to do this, they have um, challenge periods. So if somebody 
like let's just say misbehaves uh, as the node and puts in a bad transaction, somebody, anyone on the network, so like you could be just a little guy on the network and these big, big minor groups around you can challenge the block. It'll force everyone to go through and actually like compute this at a, at a sort of you know, hashing level. And if you're right and they did misbehave, they lose all the capital that they put up. So they get slashed 32 ETH. Right. Um, mm. And so the node gets bounced and then that 32 ETH comes back to the network because you challenged it. I think you get like 90% of that and a bunch of it gets burnt off. So yeah. So it's, it's sort of the, that's the mechanism to make sure everyone is behaving correctly. Mm. Dave, can I ask you a, a basic question? Yep. Say you bought a couch off Tim yep. and you wanted to pay Tim in cryptocurrency. I mean, maybe Bitcoin's the example to use since that's the one most people are familiar with. How would it work? I mean, would Tim have to have a, a wallet, a crypto wallet? Yeah. So crypto will only really send to what we call wallets are really just um, public keys and private keys. So it's the public key infrastructure that sort of backs a lot of lot of internet, at the mo- well, a lot of sort of infrastructure around the world at the moment. And you have a public key and a private key. Okay. Uh, so most people might have heard this, like somebody's private key got lifted and yeah. their crypto got drained. If you've got a private key, you can decrypt anything uh, that gets encrypted with the public key. Um, so in this case, I'm sending it to Tim's public key and then only Tim will be able to, to get that from his public key if he's got the private key. So who sets up the public key? Does Tim need to do that? Tim, Tim will do it. So in order to generate a wallet, you'll get both the public key and its private key. Okay. And who are the players that do that for you? Is that a, an exchange, a crypto exchange? Yeah, there's, there's a like you can do it through an exchange. Okay. Um, but then typically like there are iffy exchanges out there. Okay. They, they might like hold the private key or, you know, being able to recover private keys and things like that. Yeah. Um, you can do it through a, a bunch of... Um, um, sort of specialized applications. So we call them just wallets. So the most common one in Ethereum is MetaMask. Um, so it can you can just plug it in. Uh, it's just a Firefox Chrome app uh, and you can go create a new wallet and it'll generate that, those keys for you. Is that user-friendly, Dave, or is that, uh, is that something that you'd need someone like yourself to help set up? No, it's, it's, it's pretty user, user-friendly now. So um, yeah, like a, a couple of years ago, it would have been like, What's going on? What's up? But but now you know they've they've made many changes. It's been very user friendly. Like you go through, you install it. Uh, it'll be like, are you like recovering your existing wallet? Um, and if that's the case, you got to provide the private key or the seed phrases to to generate that key. Um, or um, it's just like, okay, cool, creating a new wallet. You click a button, creates the wallet for you. Yeah, it stores the like you won't see the private key, but it'll give you the seed phrases that are used to recover that private key and i'll say like record these because if you don't have the private key this is the only way to get this back okay so who would do the transaction is that through the exchange if you wanted to send money to tim or is the exchange doing is something like uh, ftx i mean what what did a company like ftx do so ftx was primarily changing um like uh, currency for cryptocurrency so they 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 act as the middleman Okay. Uh, so, you know, I'd give them Australian dollars from, from a bank. Okay. And then I could buy um, on their market at their rates 
X amount of crypto that they're holding in their wallets. Okay. And yep. then from that, I can either like, so as a part of that, typically you'll create an account with the exchange that will have like an embedded wallet associated with it or whatever the, the infrastructure needs. And then I can transfer that to say my wallet and then I can transfer some to Tim or I okay. can use that exchange to transfer it to Tim directly. Okay. Um, so exchanges are primarily there for um, transferring currency. So, so transferring um, dollars to gotcha. cryptocurrency or transferring between uh, cryptocurrency um, across chains or transferring between cryptocurrency on the same chain. Um, so when we talk about Ethereum, Ethereum is not just ETH. It has a bunch of coins on the same chain. And yeah, you can use an exchange to um, say transfer one ETH to USDC or USDT. So the, okay. the two stable coins yeah. we were talking about before. Um, or um, I could you know, do that, what they call on-chain through DEXs. So okay. decentralized exchanges. Okay. Um, so they, um, they create um, pools, uh, what we call automatic market makers. Yeah. Uh, so they usually have a pool, which is, this is a 50-50 pool. So it has Ethereum and USDC. So the pool itself, um, ideally at any point, is trying to maintain half of its quantity is Ethereum. Yeah. And the other half is USDC. Uh, and now what, what sort of I look for on chain is when somebody then dumps 20K Ethereum into that pool, means there's an imbalance between the side. So yeah. the pool would automatically want USDC or getting rid of ETH. So it's, it'll make ETH very cheap to, to buy. So it mm. wants to get rid of it to maintain the balance. Yeah. Or give me a really good price to put USDC into the pool because it wants more of that to try and maintain that 50-50. And that sort of is the classical arbitrage from yeah. that. Yeah. I can buy low at some other pool or on the DEX itself and then put it into this. And what makes that possible is decentralized exchanges uh, don't look at, um, you know, a feed that says the market price for ETH is X. So what exchanges use? So exchanges will typically have, you know, the current market price of ETH is, you know, whatever, $1,600, uh, and that's based off of, you know, what's happening now, what's happening on other exchanges like, you know, finance and things like that, and they sort of get a, get a market price for that, whereas decentralized applications, their market price is literally what the pool says. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, you can sort of get really good deals, and, yeah, when you, when you sort of try and make that market efficient on the decentralized side, it, yeah, can, can open up. Quite a, quite a bunch of opportunities. Right. Yeah. Can I just ask, Dave? So, with um, winning that transaction in your, you know, mm. for, for for that particular situation, is that all about speed, or is uh, what are the factors in being able to get that transaction? Yeah. So there's there's a couple of things that will um, impact that transaction. So on on Ethereum, it's not necessarily about speed. Uh, you certainly have to be there when they're trying to create the block. So let's just say the timing window for creating a block is 100 milliseconds. So as long as my transaction to do that is in that block, you know, time creation window, I have a chance to potentially win that transaction. Um, and what it comes down to on Ethereum is you can tip the miner to be like, you want to put my transaction first. So let's just say um, I'm going to make uh, three ETH from this transaction. I can tip the miner 2.5 of that ETH, so I get 
half of that ETH. I can give the miner 2.5 if they put my transaction first. So which means the miner is getting more money to make sure that my block is in there first, uh, my transactions in there first, and then they can put the rest of the transactions. Right. Um, and so that's sort of making up what we, what, you know, sort of what gets identified as MEV, so minor extractable value. So they're looking for the most profitable transactions to put inside their block in order to, to make the most money. Yeah. So what do we know about these miners? So there are professional miners, aren't there? And are there yeah. amateur miners? I mean, is it guys in their basement or is it like, I, mean, are there, I know there are ded- some dedicated companies, aren't there, that are doing the mining and they're all around the world. I mean, do yeah, you have any yeah. here in Brisbane? I'm just fascinated yeah, yeah. in who these miners are. Yeah, no, it's um, it really, it's, it's anyone that has the computer with the resources and, and is running the algorithm that you, you can be a miner at that point. Um, you yeah, know, miners are there to operate the chain. It, it does, um, under proof of work, it is better to be with other miners, like around other miners, because you want to broadcast the block that you find to the network as quickly as possible. Because two people might come up with the same solution or like different transaction orders, but it, both of the blocks that they produce pass the consensus algorithm. It's whoever can saturate the network or saturate 51% of the network, their block then is the next block. So you might do all this work, find a block, create the block, and then still miss out. Right. Which was the original problem anyway. So is yeah. it just, is it well, as far as energy consumption goes? So with the change that Ethereum made, it's the same process, but just quicker and with fewer people vying for it. Is that right? Yeah, just, just one person vying for it. So it's like uh, with proof of stake, it's like it's your turn to create the block um, and you have to answer within a certain time frame. If you don't, uh, there is a little bit of a penalty, like you lose, you start to lose some of your stake and they just go to the next person. And how, how do you, be in that little group or chain or oh like, it's just really running the um the node software so the, the actual yeah. node software is is executing you just connect to it and 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 you're pretty much in at that point yeah what do you know about the profitability of the the mining because is it something where there's such low barriers to entry there's just you know lots of people who come into it seeking the profit and then mm. that gets uh you know that those opportunities get dissipated or or I mean, I'm guessing there are some players in the mining game who have they've just got such great computer capability, or they've they've got a better algorithm uh, that they could get a lot of the the winnings. But what do you know about the profitability of mining and the yeah, the, I guess the market structure, I suppose you'd call it. Yeah. So, um, under proof of work, mining profitability, I think, sort of when we talk about Bitcoin, is starting to fade away very quickly because mm. you need to, you know, spend all this energy. And I'm I'm pretty, pretty sure that they've dropped the block rewards um, quite recently. So what you get for actually creating a block, that's come down. So you're getting less and less sort of Bitcoin for creating that block now. Right. So the, yeah. the profitability is starting to go away. In Ethereum, it's still kind of there. It's sort of like a random, random shoot. It's if you get a really good block where let's just say something skewed cool a lot, and you know, you've got these uh, searches trying to like get money out of the pool to make it market efficient, you might end up with a block that might pay you say 50 ETH in those tips. So that's random, but the problem is is that there's a lot of like nodes around the world for Ethereum because now it's just yeah, 
super, super, yeah, super basic to set up and the sort of requirements are starting to fall away a little bit um, that, yeah, it is hard to like get to that block. Like it is pretty much a, yeah. a random chance. Okay. With um, Dave, you mentioned a couple of terms actually how Bitcoin operate and how Ethereum mm-hmm. operate, which is essentially then the difference that made it possible for Ethereum to uh, use so much less energy. Yep. Uh, what was that again? So uh, their consensus mechanism, so proof of work uh, versus yeah. proof of stake. Yeah, right. Okay. So uh, Bitcoin and proof of work. Bitcoin and proof of work. Yep. Is it possible for them to do the same thing as Ethereum and move to proof of stake? It is. They would have to change how the chain would, or not how the chain will, how the miners would operate. So the actual software that, that the miners run. Um, one of the things with Bitcoin is there are very big miner groups now. So, so there's a lot of sort of power in these groups because they don't want you know, the status quo to change because they're, right. they're, making, they're making money. Um, so, so proof of work works for those miners. Yeah. And right. so you have to convince like the majority of the miners or like 90% of the miners that this is the way forward. Otherwise, um, what will happen is you'll get a hard fork. So you'll potentially see if you've looked at sort of some of the crypto, you'll see like Bitcoin Classic and Ethereum Classic. Yeah. These are hard forks of the chains where right. miners have just disagreed. Okay. And so, you know, a group of miners went one way, another group of miners went the other way. People, eh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Always spoiling it. <laughs> what do these humans do? Okay, so... um because uh, with that, I mean, it looked like such a big change for Ethereum that Bitcoin might have its days numbered. Like, is that a fair yeah, assumption? Yeah, uh, I, I think so. I, like, I think Bitcoin's done really good stuff in trying to, like, break into the businesses and, 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 and operate as, like, hey, here's a digital asset coin and sort of challenge the status quo that was previously there. Um, it's, its days do look, you know, pretty, pretty bleak in terms of the future. It is just a coin. It is just a digital asset. And you've got um, other sort of cryptocurrencies like Ethereum that operate as a coin, but then also have these decentralized exchanges. Yeah. There's, you know, on-chain games that you can play and like do stuff with. Um, they're building out an entire ecosystem over the top of them. So um, they've now got what, what gets referred to as layer two chains. So chains that operate on Ethereum. Uh, so you can bridge assets. So I can take what I've got on Ethereum and port it up to this layer two chain. And that layer two chain is secured by Ethereum. So typically yeah. like um, take Arbitrum, for example, it's a really popular layer two chain on Ethereum. Uh, what they do is they've got their own, they're, they're a centralized chain. So the way that they validate and sequence blocks is controlled by uh, off-chain labs. But what they do is when they've got a bunch of blocks, they roll them all up so they have a roll-up mechanism and they send that data back down as a transaction on layer one. And so when it gets committed into layer one, I can essentially rebuild the layer two chain from just layer one. And that's where I sort of think Ethereum is going to head towards the future is that Ethereum, what we call layer layer one, um, will end up being more of a, a security mechanism rather than sort of what exists today with uh, DEXs and coins that will still be around, but I think the majority of use will start to go towards layer two and potentially even layer three because they can upscale the amount of transactions they can handle. Yeah. Um, so that's that's the other one um, that's pretty key 
if this was going to take over as sort of like a digital asset is how many transactions you can compute per second. Um, so, you know, take um, Visa, for example, I think and do like 4,000 4, transactions a second. Um, and so, you know, that sort of puts a minimum requirement on how many transactions you can compute per second in order to like not really notice it. So you don't notice like when you tap your credit card to go pay a delay of like, hang on, got to mind that block. Yeah. <laughs> Is this where we need quantum computers? And are they, are they something that will actually happen? Potentially. Um, there, yeah, it, it, it depends on like what gets used. So um, hashing is always a weird one for quantum computers because uh, hashes are typically uh, not uh, vulnerable to, I guess, you know, Shaw's algorithm, which says basically sort of at a high level, anything that's secured by, say, just a uh, cryptographic algorithm, you can break uh, with Shaw's algorithm, oh, it sort yeah. of speeds yeah, gotcha. it all up. So cryptography today depends on the fact that when I make like input equal output, if I have to break that output, it's a brute force attack. So I have to just iterate through all possible inputs to try and find what input gave me that output. It depends on that that is pretty much impossible. You need a lot of resources and it's going to take a lot of time. Not to say it's not impossible, but it's so far out of just, it's a hundred years to like try and work out what this input equals that output, that it's just not worth it. Um, so that's what fundamentally secures all cryptography today in, in those sort of algorithms. Um, what the concern with quantum is, is that you'll be able to do that a lot, lot quicker. Yeah, yeah. But with hashes, um, not so much. It still just has okay. to run through how the hashes work. Right, okay. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, um, yeah, I had another, had another question about this proof of work versus proof of stake. One criticism I heard at the time when uh, this uh, merge occurred, was it the merge they called it? The merge, it? Yeah. yeah. Was that, well, the, the great thing about Bitcoin, and I think I had, yeah, I had a guest on the show who was a Bitcoin enthusiast, and he was also a uh, a, th- a writer of thrillers, uh, Lars uh, Emmerich, I think it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was interesting guest. Fun time. <laughs> yeah, it was great. It was excellent. A, a former fighter pilot, and oh well, yeah. yeah, he writes thrillers, and he's. We talked about crypto among other things, and he's a big Bitcoin enthusiast because he sees the risk of. He's concerned about the US dollar. And, yeah. yeah hyperinflation, et cetera. Um, so we had a good conversation on that. Uh, and, but he was saying the great thing about Bitcoin is it's decentralized. The proof of work means that uh, there's benefits from having proof of work. And it is, I guess what I'm asking, is Ethereum still crypto? Is it still, I mean, does moving to proof of stake move away from the benefits of having, having to do that proof of work? I mean, oh yeah, yeah, no, not not really. So okay. it it is still crypto. It's still cryptographically, you know, okay. locked in and secured. Um, is it, it still decentralized? Still decentralized. Okay. Yeah. So so absolutely. So it's even uh, some people can argue it's it, it's even becoming more decentralized than say Bitcoin. So 
Bitcoin itself is moving towards centralization because you have these big minor groups that start to control more and more of the chains. So okay. that's sort of moving towards a centralized figure. Um, and so that's, you know, that, that 51% attack that we talked about earlier. Mm. With moving to a proof of stake in order to control or sort of start to centralize the chain, I have to control 51% of all Ethereum. So every single ETH that's ever been issued, I need to hold 51% of that, oh, which see. is you know, yeah, okay. starting to become trillions and trillions of dollars. Yeah. So it is less viable for me to actually try and to attack at the network. And um, yeah, it's, it's sort of proof of stake kind of starts to push more of a distributed type of feel to it. It doesn't stop big groups coming together and like obviously trying to, pull the chain towards centralization. Um, but I would probably argue that proof of stake makes that harder than, say, proof of work. Okay, we'll take a short break here for a word from our sponsor. If you need to crunch the numbers, then get in touch with Adept Economics. We offer you frank and fearless economic analysis and advice. We can help you with funding submissions, cost-benefit analysis studies, and economic modelling of all sorts. Our head office is in Brisbane, Australia, but we work all over the world. You can get in touch via our website, www.adepteconomics.com.au. We'd love to hear from you. Now back to the show. Can I say, what would happen with... um layer one layer two if someone was to uh, get a, get that 51 percent ownership do they then become the yeah. layer one they've they've got the they've got the conch as it were you know so is is that is that where the layer one status is is like yeah, whoever yeah. has the majority yeah so yeah pretty much whoever, like yeah if somebody can control you know the the layer one and you put layer twos and layer threes built on top of it they call the shots they, they call it yeah they they effectively have the control of the network because it's an interesting um, part of how this seems to be unfolding is that uh, the decentralized nature seemed to be one of the big attractions and I'm sure mm. still is. Um, but as far as confidence in the currency, it seems to be the downfall uh, of, of yeah. it. So uh, it's, it looks quite possible that, um, say, for instance, uh, Reserve Bank of Australia or Bank of England may want to bring out their own cryptocurrency. Mm. Uh, which would then be centralized. That would be layer two, as you were saying. So if they did it with Ethereum, it would, for instance, uh, you know, hypothetically, it would come on as a layer two, uh, but be centralized. Yeah. Um, what are the, is, is that the direction we're heading in? Does that, does that seem to be most likely? Um, yeah, to, it maybe. <laughs> um, <laughs> I I think because they would want control of the chain. So so one of the reasons I guess that. Uh, a lot of people are still, you know, fairly excited. Is that um, cryptocurrencies do bring some anonymity to the game? Mm-hmm. You're just identified by a wallet, not by name, address, or anything like that. Yeah, right. Sort of what the banks need, so you don't get KYC um, in exchanges. So you people, don't get what? Sorry, uh, KYC. So know your customer. Oh, hello. all right. Yeah, that's to stop money laundering. <laughs> you know, I'll write that one down. Yeah, that's to stop dodgy transactions. <laughs> Technically, they're supposed to know their customers, and this is where some banks have got into trouble because yeah. it appears that they actually didn't know their customers. And all of the money laundering through the Westpac uh, ATMs, I don't know if you remember that. 
It was was it West? I, there was a little. I remember stuff with Combank. They were doing. Maybe it was Combank. Yeah. Actually, I better check that and yeah. put it in the show notes so I don't get sued by, <laughs> by one of the big four banks. <laughs> I thought it was Westpac. But it, I, it might anyway, be, yeah. It was one of them. It one was of one them, of the yeah. big four. Um, okay. Yeah. So. Uh, Oh, good to know because I've got to deliver a cash apparently. So, uh, <laughs> so good thing to know. Right, yeah. Sorry. So, so currently, sort of, you know, government regulations um, sort of say like, okay, if you are transferring currencies and things like that, um, yeah, you, you have to KYC. So you have to know yeah, your okay. customer, have to provide details. Um, yeah. And one one of the great things about digital coins is you know you just identified by a wallet on the network. Um, so, you know, is that really you? I don't know. Um, so you know, this is where um, yeah. Recently, I had to go through through tax um, yeah, end end of end of year, which is which was always fun. Uh, and yeah, you got to provide like here's your wallet addresses. These are all the wallet addresses I touched. These are all the transactions I made to um, obviously ATO, so they they can make sure that you, know, you are getting taxed correctly. That's uh, a really good point. I hadn't thought of that. So how does this work with? A tax return, like you know, with your transactions, yeah, and every, what, what you own, what you don't. Every, every transaction is considered um, uh, uh, an investment or or a sell, a yeah. buy or sell order, basically. Um, so, uh, cryptocurrency still is considered well. It's it's a high risk investment, right? It yeah. is extremely volatile, um, and yeah, and there are m- many dodgy things that do happen on chains, and you know, one of the classic examples is you can't even trust exchanges because FTX, for example, they were messing around with customer funds and things like that. Um, and so, so yeah, she would. I was going to ask at some point. Now's obviously that time, yeah. I guess. <laughs> what happened? Uh, so, sort of the story that we got for for the collapse of FTX. Customers are obviously putting in the money. FTX, I believed at the time, uh, offered you know futures options, you know traditional sort of trading uh, markets that people could play around with. Uh, however. They also sort of had a behind the doors deal with one of their sub companies. I think it's Alamira El- El- or something something similar to that, where they lent them a bunch of money that then was backed by customer money from an FTX FTX's perspective, and they played around with it and lost. I, I think it was they lost billions and billions of dollars. Right. And so when customers started to lose confidence in FTX, I can't remember what the particular event was and they tried to withdraw their money they couldn't because ftx didn't have uh, that money anymore so and that's sort of what led to the collapse and what you know ultimately forced the u.s government to start to step in yeah um, and that's where i think we'll start to see more changes i think crypto is here to stay but in its current form probably not i think governments will start to get involved and yeah you'll start to see um, sort of a traditional securities market approach, I think, come over the top of it. So, yeah, whether, you know, more KYC or, you know, more rules around what you can and can't do in particular countries, which makes it quite hard because there is no one thing controlling crypto and it's all decentralized. So it's like, well, if we see you're coming from the US, you got to use this. If we see you're coming from, Australia, you got to do this, which, yeah, it's, it's hard to make that work well. So that was a failure of the exchange, not the currency. Yeah, that was, that was purely a failure of the exchange. So the, the people running the exchange are doing yeah. Um, yeah, questionable, questionable things. 
Yeah, because they should have just been exchanging or holding that money on behalf of their customers and they were going to use that to purchase cryptocurrencies, were they? Yeah, so effectively like yeah. they would purchase cryptocurrencies and then they would sell it on. So yeah. they, you know, if starting up, they would probably be running at a bit of a deficit or like have a right. somebody's given them a bunch of money to and have that initial crypto yeah. there. And then, uh, yeah, as people come in and they like give money for that crypto, obviously at a particular market uh, margin, um, yeah, they, they start to be able to add more crypto and, and sort of become profitable in that regard. Yeah, but they went and did they go and lend that money that they should have held in trust or they should they were looking after for customers to that that other company the, the other that company, was run yeah. by his ex-girlfriend. Yeah, by Sam like Bankman-Fried's ex-girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. who's a daughter of an economist. Uh, that was economist, Shane, yeah, I tell yeah. you what. <laughs> MIT economist. I'm just trying to remember her name. I think, I think he's a professor at MIT or one of those schools, uh, a really good school. Um, yeah, yeah, that was a debacle. The other thing I hear about is uh, the rug pull. Oh, Coffeezilla rugs. always yeah. goes on about yeah. rug pulls. I mean, Coffeezilla, you probably follow yeah. him or you see yeah, him on I've YouTube. Him. Yeah. He's really skeptical of crypto. Have you seen Coffeezilla? No, I'll flick but you I'm, some videos. Yeah. Really I, love, I love the fact that rug pull got into yeah. the conversation. I've never heard of this, so I'm, so I'm looking forward to hearing about this. It's, it's a it's a funny term. So obviously there are with with anything new and like give somebody a little bit of anonymity, they just go wild. Um, you know, the, there are at the moment a lot of yeah you know, a lot of good actors there. People are trying to you know accomplish and create new things, but there are also a lot of bad actors there. Um, so. Classical pump and dump schemes are, you know, not uncommon. And yeah, one of the other ones is is what gets, yeah, what got its own name, which is a rug pull. So let's just say, you know, there's there's a there's a token that I'm I'm releasing. Uh, people are buying that token, so they're sending me money, and I'm giving them the token back. And then I'm the owner. Cool, I can just like swipe all that money out of the account, and then that token is now worthless. That's that's effectively a rug pull. So the people who created that that have control of that sort of asset because um, the asset on a, on Ethereum are controlled by contracts. So if you got the private key to the contract, you effectively control the contract mm. um, and you can just take all the money that's in that contract and then mm. the token then becomes worthless. Actually, on, on that note, mm. so this this brings up the question I was going to ask, who starts these? And obviously, you know, whoever is behind Bitcoin or Ethereum, mm. are they known? Like, uh, you know? So... Bitcoin, no. Um, there is there is a famous paper that is written, but no one knows the true identity. Um, within Ethereum, it's it's Vitalik. Uh, so he he created Ethereum, and then it's now run by the Ethereum Foundation. Um, so the people who sort of operate and try to improve the chain and things like that are known um, as a foundation. Whereas Bitcoin, it's it's murky who started that. I mean, it's, yeah. it's very James Bond, the whole thing of like, you know, having something like Bitcoin with, you don't know who's behind it. Mm. It's, it's fascinating that it's anonymous at that, at that level with uh, potentially a lot of power. Well, it was this mm. person uh, with a pseudonym. Was it Satoshi? So, Satoshi, it started with a K, yeah, but yeah, Satoshi. Uh, something yeah. like that. I'll put links in the show notes. And what they did, I think they published a white paper. So they published the, the code or the rules mm. for... For Bitcoin, and then people read it and thought, actually, yeah, this would could work. This is a great idea. Let's go ahead with this. So, 
uh, you know, is obviously a computer scientist of some kind. Potentially, yeah. And I think, is there an Australian who claims that he invented it? I think. I, I well, yeah, there, there are claims that the Australian is, is Satoshi. Oh, yeah. right. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So sort of he released the white paper with um, the chain already there. So one of the things that uh, you have to do to, I guess, you know, start a chain is you've got to create the genesis block. So the first block that then things build on top of. Uh, and typically, if you're going to create the genesis block, well, you might as well just create a, you know, a good fundamental base. So I think um, I think Satoshi has like a ridiculous amount of Bitcoin because you know you're effectively controlled um, the base asset right at the start, uh, and then you sort of like give yourself as much as you need as, as you're building these blocks. Like you might release the chain to the public, say, and it's got like. Two, three hundred blocks. So you've got all the rewards for those blocks are doing no work, no competition. But now you're going to release the chain. And so, I think uh, from memory, um, reading papers, like everyone knows which coins, because obviously the, the the coins effectively get numbered based on the block that they were minted in. Um, and and on that note, Dave, there's a certain number of Bitcoin, and then that's it. Is that yep. right? Yep. And was that determined at the very beginning, like at the outset? Yeah, so that would have been determined by by the actual algorithm that, that got generated for, for Bitcoin. How many are there? I don't know. <laughs> I think it's 21 million, isn't it? I, I, something I like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes anyway. So that's um, part of the strength of it, though, that it's a finite number. It is a finite, yeah. So it's like it is it is the strength. So once, once everything's been mined, you know, that's it. Then it just becomes transactions passing between to and fro. So you need um, a level of scarcity for it to have a value? Well, scarcity will drive the wealth of the actual element up um, or potentially not depending on which way it flows. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's that's the sort of appeal for it is that it's running out. So if you're going to grab it. And is that comparable to how many Ethereum there are in the in, in circulation? Um, no, uh, no. So, uh, <laughs> I knew I was asking the question. Yeah, this is not right. <laughs> Ethereum. Um, so, so what what gets classified as as, as Ethereum has uh, it, it does have a max value, but it's, right. it's quite big. Um, so, so how, how, sorry. I mean, this is uh, coming from a very base level of understanding, um, but I, I'm sort of fascinated by this. Um, so, how does that work then with Ethereum? Mm-hmm. How many? Like what, what do you call it? so Bitcoin is a Bitcoin? Bitcoin is a Bitcoin, isn't it? What what, what do Ethereum work with? ETH. So Ethereum. Oh, is, ETH. Sorry. Yes. So, okay. Uh, yeah. So, so the number of ETH isn't determined. It's not finite. Uh, it, there is a, there is a finite, but they can always add more. So it, it's yeah. It's, okay. It's backed by a contract, and you can always change that contract. Um, sort of as an example, um, like right at the start, it was it was ETH. So uh, ETH is the classical. Yeah. Um, everyone knows it, and sort of what gets defaulted to. Technically, it's not ETH anymore. It's actually wrapped ETH. Uh, so um, three or four years ago, I, I think um, the the foundation or, or or one of the one of the partners that works with with Ethereum closely, they published a standard that every token should follow because uh, a token is really just a contract on chain, uh, and you're calling methods on that that contract to say mint, burn, yeah, uh, you know who. What does, how many does this address have? If everyone is, you know, everyone just goes, oh, I'm going to create a new contract, that API of like, what do I call to like mint? What do I call to burn? Uh, could change from token to token. So what got published was 
um, what get, what's been classified as ERC-20. So it's a standard uh, that every token follows. So an ERC-20 token follows this standard. ETH at the time didn't, didn't meet that standard. And so they created a, a contract that did create, that did meet the standard called wrapped ETH. Um, and you can transfer ETH and wrapped ETH at a one-to-one. So okay. I can I can have like eight ETH and automatically make it eight wrapped ETH. Okay. Uh, it's just like taking that asset and making it different. Yeah. Um, but it's still what you know, it's still what we call ETH on chain. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Here's another basic question that just occurred to me. So a Bitcoin, I'm not sure what it's valued at the moment, but is it around twenty thousand yeah, USD? Twenty six thousand US. Twenty six thousand, right. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yep. Can I have a, a fraction of a Bitcoin? Can I or yep. but like how does that work? I mean, or because I thought if it's in a wallet, does it have to be one Bitcoin or can it be can it be a fraction oh, of a no, Bitcoin? It, it can be a fraction of Bitcoin. Uh, so typically with the, the tokens, they'll have um, like we call it decimals on chain, but it's really just precision. Okay, gotcha. Um, so like uh, I think Bitcoin has a precision of six, I think six or eight. I'd have to double check that. So, which means I could have 0. 0.000001 of a bit. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. As long as it's within that that precision element, it, it doesn't matter. Okay. So you can you can still operate and work on it. Gotcha. Um, yeah. So as an example, uh, ETH has a precision of eighteen. Right. So, so one ETH actually on chain is one times ten to the power of eighteen. That's what it looks like on chain. Okay. Um, and what yeah. what's an ETH worth nowadays? I think it's around sixteen hundred USD at the moment. Okay, so as far as affordability goes, in a, a single ETH against a Bitcoin, an ETH is um, and ETH is more affordable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Dave, can I ask about smart contracts? Yep. So, as an economist, and, and you know, speaking with you know other economists, and you know, just reading about crypto and and all of that. Um, I mean, the, there seems to be increasingly there's a view that, well, crypto might, you know, there's, there's a lot of skepticism about crypto itself, but they're saying, well, the blockchain's great and smart mm. contracts are great. So can you explain what a smart contract is and, and it's linked to Ethereum? Is that yeah. correct? Yep. Yeah. How does that work? Yeah. So um, uh, a smart contract is really just code that's on the chain. Uh, so uh, one of the, one of the Sort of, I think you know, very you know, fundamental things that makes Ethereum quite good is that I can store more than just the coin on the chain. I can create code, I can put it on chain, and then that's the code for everyone. So that code can no longer be changed, which does lead to some interesting problems. Like, oh crap, there's a bug. How do I actually you know patch and fix that bug? And you know, that's that's kind of We've seen consequences of that already yeah. where somebody's found a security flaw and just like stolen millions and millions of dollars from contracts or from, from DEXs in particular. Um, so they're sort of the common hacks that are in Ethereum. So whenever you see somebody's hacked, say, a bridge or uh, a DEX, that's typically somebody's found a flaw in the code and been able to exploit that code. Yeah, so a contract is written in Solidity um, for, for the most part. So Solidity is the most common language used for writing smart contracts. And it's, it's, just, it's just really code at that point. It's just structured code. So similar to, obviously different, but like similar to as if I was to read 
uh, a C program. Uh, so, well, you know, a Rust program or anything like that. It's it's just common. It's just code. So um, that's where you, if you've ever heard coders law on some of the sort of the defenses of hacks, that's that's where that's coming from. Is that this is written as code, and the code allowed me to take millions of dollars. Therefore, am I really responsible for it now? My view is <laughs> yes. Like <laughs> you're, you're misusing the code. This is no morality or yeah. ethics. It's not a strong defense, really. No, is it? It's not a strong defense at all. It's like if the be- you get a million dollars deposited yeah. in your bank account, you can't go out and buy a Ferrari. Right? Oh, you surely can. <laughs> as I was saying, as I was saying, the door was open, so I went in and took what I could yeah, carry. Yeah, yeah. So, you know. so actually, with that as well, because I was zoom- zooming out a little bit as well, Dave. Um, yep. You know. Financial markets, um, there are so many uh, issues like uh, that may influence it, like uh, human emotions, like greed, panic, fear. Mm, mm. These things happen all the time, you know, cyclical or whatever it may be. And banks get robbed, you know, yep. like, you know, cash was stolen, whatever. This doesn't seem to be answering too many sort of problems. Like, you know, they can get hacked. Um, yeah. So as far as... There's a few questions with it, I guess, because the number one thing with all of that is trust, in mm. my view. Like, you know, if people trust something more and more, then it's a, it's a stronger uh, sort of system and less likely to be driven by greed, panic, mm. fear, et cetera. Mm. What, what, what's the pros and cons, if you like, of uh, crypto? Like, if we uh, ultimately heading towards something where we might be able to have more trust in a, in a financial system than we currently have? Yeah, potentially. Um so I think if um, the people are known uh, on this, so, you know, sort of Ethereum, you, you know who's who's running the show to yeah. a degree. Yeah. Um, so know. there's trust there as well compared trust. to Bitcoin yeah. and some phantom person with a white paper yeah. is less uh, less trustworthy, I guess, but yeah. Yeah, sort of, you know, human nature, we sort of trust if we can see somebody and like, oh, that, that that's actually a real person, you know, there rather than like, talking to a computer screen will be like, you know, who are you actually really talking to on yeah. the other side of that? Um, so I think, you know, inherently we will trust uh, obviously the traditional market setups more because they are run by people. Um, and that's where uh, hopefully, you know, something like Ethereum uh, can start to, to come in and, and sort of do that. But while you still have people who can misuse, I guess the environment of like, these rug pulls and you know just doing pump and dump schemes and things like that, it does get hard to trust. Um, you know, is everything on there really a scam or not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, it's sort of a, a, a double whammy where it's like, um, you know, for myself personally, it's like, yeah, I, I trust Ethereum. Like, I don't think the Ethereum ecosystem or anything like that's going to go away anytime soon. The changes that they're making to it are. You know, sensible and, and things like that, and you can actually see and talk to the people at conferences. However, the contracts and like opportunities that then can be a part of Ethereum, yeah, that's where it gets a bit dodgy, and that's where you need to sort of like, okay, I trust you know this exchange more than the others. You know, Uniswap, for example, has been around on Ethereum for so long. Well, probably since it since it started, right? And they're a, they're a decentralized automatic market maker. I trust that, you know, they've been around for so long, you know, probably so many people have tried to hack their pools 
nothing's really happened to it. So if I'm dealing with Uniswap as a DEX, I'm 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 pretty pretty confident that you know nothing bad's going to happen, other than I might not get the best price on chain for my tokens. But that's the most likely weak link in that chain is the exchanges or the the middle the people mm. in the middle between the consumer and the and Ethereum, say for using Ethereum yeah, as an yeah. example. So sort of the, the users of Ethereum, people are actually creating their own what, what we call DApps, so decentralized applications. Yeah, that's that's where I think that that trust will start to to fade. And and because crypto itself is, you know, it's it's quite volatile, hasn't had, you know, the best sort of sort of time. It's been up, it's been down, it's dumped, it's you know, come back and dumped again. Yeah. Um you know, a, a lot of people I, I think a lot of people look at it and go, cool, that might be a good way to, you know, make easy money because it's just like going left, right, and center. Uh, but it can also backfire very quickly. Yeah. Right? yeah. And, uh, where where it sort of blurs the line is that it's not treated as a traditional investment, like because it is digitalized and I can interact with it and I can like spend money on it. Like people treat it as money, but it's really volatile money like <laughs> if you're willing to take advice from matt damon and Kiefer sutherland yeah, i mean yeah. like it's so uh, you know yeah they they yeah. are very confident of it being a good move but. yeah yeah um yeah i've got a couple of two more questions dave we're probably getting close to time have you got a couple more tim uh, i've i've um no i'm good thank you yeah, okay. i've been i've been enjoying as it's gone on and interjected yeah, yeah. but no I've, my big ones have I've, I've asked thank you yeah i've learned a lot it's uh, it's great um would you have any examples of DApps? That what are some DApps that we might want to look at, just so we can understand what what they are? Oh yeah, a um, couple of pretty pretty fun ones. So there's a game called Wizards and Dragons. Okay. So it's a it's a decentralized application, but it's 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 also a game. It's pretty fun. It released I think a couple of years ago, and what it is is um, you mint an NFT. And it has a chance to be a wizard or a dragon. And then based off of if it's a wizard, it can like interact with, you can stake it. So you can actually say to the contract, hey, here's my wizard, um, which is staking. And it might earn certain rewards. So there's a coin that's associated with the game as well. Uh, so there's a coin called Windy. So it's well, wizards and dragons. Um, and that coin can then be used to spend on their contracts to you know interact with the actual game and stuff like that so it's not like i'm continually having to feed eth it's just then gas fees at that point um or if you get a dragon like you have chances to steal wizards when they go and stake and unstake it's it's yeah it's a pretty pretty fun one this is a computer game is it yeah it's it's a game on chain yeah so it's it's a game that actually happens within the blockchain a game i mean what like world of warcraft sort of less less so so the game is um happening per transaction so i send a transaction to do something with the game like the contracts that make up the game are there and then i like create a transaction to say stake my wizard and then there's a chance if dragons are staked that my wizard goes to a dragon. But, uh, okay, I'm going to ask a really <laughs> dumb question. But do I see a wizard on the screen or do I see dragons? You see both. Yeah, you, you can see both. So, like, depending on what you've minted, you get an NFT, which is a, okay. a type of token, so a non-fungible right. token. Okay. So, you know, they were the, the ones that um, got talked about, I think, 
why the last couple of years because like Crypto yeah. Kitties yeah, and, yeah, okay. and, and the punks and the, the apes, they're all worth stupid amount of money. So these are basically like a, it's a um, in, in the form of like having something that's identifiable as being unique, mm-hmm. even though it can be copied. So take, taking the Mona Lisa as an example, there's yeah. one painting, but there's millions of copies. Yep. And so it's basically a digital form, a non-fungible token uh, or nifty, I've heard them called. Tim nifty. Ferriss calls them nifties. <laughs> um, but so it, basically it's having something that can be identified as being uh, the original and, and owned by a person. Yeah, and so we see that as like a token. That's yeah. just really like a coin is uh, not quite an NFT because there are many coins, but it's like an NFT is sort of a superset. There's only like one coin that represents this thing. And so, yeah, it's sort of like it's just a token. And yeah, that that has things. So like I can go interact with the contract, you know, mint for a bunch of ETH. So that's sort of how they get their startup is like hand over like it's usually like point, point oh 0.07 ETH or point oh 0.05 ETH to mint and have a random chance to, to generate a wizard or a dragon. And then they will sort of give you that NFT. So you'll get that token back. And then, yeah, you can use that token to then interact with the rest of their contract on the actual Ethereum chain. Right. Okay. And are they used in these massive multiplayer games as well online? Uh, no, uh, the coins the could coin, be. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think they're starting to come out. Um, I think I read recently with like, yeah, digital coins. Yeah. But um, suit sort of, I look and go to, to be fair, that sort of already was kind of going their place anyway. So, okay. you know, like, um, I could pay a bunch of money to the Microsoft store and have like Xbox oh, okay. credits and things yeah. like that. Gotcha. That that was sort of already the lean. Okay. Um, and then yeah, what what you know, one of the good things that has come about sort of what's happening with the blockchains and things like that is yeah, sort of companies are realizing actually that's that's a pretty nifty way of like dealing with this, um, sort of securing that data and making sure like, oh, okay, we can't accidentally, you know, do something uh, like you can't go back and try and change those records. It's sort of there permanently and you can follow a transaction at a time uh, for you know, bookkeeping purposes or you know, yeah. yeah, I'm going to have to come back to smart contracts in a future episode because I think that's probably its own episode, is it? There's a lot yeah, to talk it, about there. There's, it, there's a much, yeah. There's right. a, a lot, of, lot of things to talk about, um, I guess, in, in contracts. Uh, and, yeah, sort of, you know, that's you know, how, they, how they get built you know, how, how they sort of interact and, you know, that's where these bugs can can arise and, you know, people might accidentally introduce yeah. something and somebody takes money. Yeah, and I'd be fascinated <laughs> to know who the parties to the contract are. I mean, could Tim and I have a smart contract where if certain conditions are met or if the then Tim transfers Ethereum to me? So if, uh, I mean, is there a way of programming it so that, if it's uh, say, let's take the weather for example. If the maximum temperature for Brisbane ends up being over thirty-five degrees on one day in the future, mm-hmm. then the smart contract picks that up and then transfers, uh, um, I don't know, one ETH to me from Tim. Yeah, it it, it can do. Uh, so there's there's a bunch of things that need to happen okay. and, and be in place for that. Um, but yeah, you can store like money so you can store eth with the smart contract because it is itself really just an address and then yeah it, you like a transaction is usually always going to be the trigger it just can't do stuff automatically you always have to trigger it with the transaction and yeah you can just be like oh okay cool. 
just oh, you have to trigger it with a transaction. Yeah. Okay, so it's not it's not going to automatically. It's not a way of automating transactions. Then I misunderstood. No, it. yeah, you, you, okay. you can't. Yeah, everything that happens on the chain has to have triggered from a transaction. Okay, so a transaction might trigger a bunch of things to happen. Yeah. And, and interact with a bunch of stuff on chain. Uh, but yes, every everything will come through from a certain transaction has triggered this thing, which might then trigger events, but in you know, cascade of roll-ons. Okay. I might have to look at that in a future episode. I promise I've only got one more question. <laughs> you got any more qu- No, I just want to comment. I'm not surprised in the least to to hear that wizards and dragons enter the conversation because no, yeah. <laughs> it, it seems to be a natural progression from uh the the smartest of the smart um in uh you know the 80s or whatever the <laughs> 90s whatever that have come through to this point and uh and no doubt behind some of this uh technology or this this um these theories Oh, we're we're all we're all nerds on the inside, right? So yeah, but it's great. Yeah, it's yeah. sort of like, but there's a human element to that as well, which which is uh, nice to see. That's great. <laughs> uh, final question, Dave. For you, what are the use cases for crypto? Why do you think it's good to for you personally to be in crypto? It's it's a fairly exciting field. So I'm a I'm a software engineer by trade. Um, you know, I studied as a computer systems engineer, um, and it's can be difficult to try and see how techno- technology progresses through the years. So, you know, unless you're sort of, say, deep in with uh, Google and working on their, you know, bleeding edge stuff, um, for the most part, it's all kind of pretty much the same. Um, and so it's pretty cool to see uh, something. So, you know, this this whole blockchain theories and, and and the cryptographic proofs and stuff, I think we're around since I think the 80s. So it's it's always interesting to see how that is getting transformed and evolved into something new. Uh, and then, yeah, then, then being used and sort of one of, one of the cooler things I think that's coming a, a part of this, it's sort of attaching itself to sort of a wider push of, you know, everyone should be. And I think, you know, I think if you look at the world today, you know, most of the kids growing up today are very computer literate um, and it is sort of continuing to push that. Like computers are just going to become more and more part of it. And I think uh, the common school of like programming or, or reading or writing code should be sort of start to become one of the, the fundamental things just because of the heavy involvement that we start to have. So understanding why things are doing things. Right, yeah. Now, the other part of that is you, you personally, so assuming... I may be incorrect, but I'm, I'm assuming you own some crypto yes. of some kind. Yeah. So, to you, what are the the use cases? Why, what value do you see in in having it all? So, Lars Emmerich, for example, he's concerned about the value of the US dollar. He's hmm. concerned about all of the money printing. He's concerned about hyperinflation. What are the what are the use cases, or what would motivate you to have crypto? Yeah, it's I, I guess you know. Personally, uh, I, I'm I'm pretty pretty basic. For me, it's just a fun, high okay. risk investment. Um, yep. So I, I see it as, as something that that might pay off, uh, or it might not. Um, you know, I personally I don't have a, a lot of money in it, um, but it also because uh, I'm in the area, it helps me like interact with chains and yeah, play around with like games such as like Wizards and Dragons and you know, <laughs> sort of have, have a bit of fun there. As a confession, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But I still see it as a very high risk asset. Yeah, um, you know, I'm I'm still relatively young, so 
to me if you know I lose lose what I've got. Personally, I've only got about twenty k there. It's it's not gonna gonna hit me hard. Hit me hard in terms of I'm gonna make that back over my yeah, lifetime yeah. of work. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, if it if it goes and like whoo, and yeah, all of a sudden that twenty k goes to hundred k. Yay. Um, <laughs> right. Um, yeah, yeah. But it's, it's actually a good point because none of this is in any way investment advice from us. Oh, good. Exactly. It, yes. You know, like it's no uh, investment advice. <laughs> and the, the, the one thing that gets mentioned all the time is a little bit like going to the, the horse race or something like yeah. that. You know, if you've got something that you can afford to lose, then go for it because it is a high yeah. risk this, uh, yeah. investment and see what happens. I honestly look at this and go, it should be treated as a casino. Like, yeah. You, you got to walk into a casino going, like, I have money. If I lose it, I'm not going to like get carried out by security. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like you can afford to lose the money. Uh, it is, yeah, extremely high risk. And I think, um, like, especially now with the sort of uh, scenarios that happen, like the FTX collapse and, you know, some of the other things that are happening there, and like the US government sort of taking notice or like the, the SEC taking notice more parts and like pulling out rulings and stuff, it will become a little bit of like, no one is really certain what's going to happen in yeah. the area. Yeah. Uh, so it's probably, you know, at this point still quite, it's probably riskier than than it was before because, you know, the SEC might turn around and say, no crypto, goodbye. And like, um, you know, you shut out the entire US market. Like that's not going to play well for, for crypto. SEC? Uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission. Yeah. yeah, all right. Yeah. Okay. Dave, that's been terrific. I mean, we've learned so much. I mean, I've yeah, been blown away with all, <laughs> all this info. And it, I think it's helped me understand more what's going on and it's dispelled some or it's got rid of some ideas or misunderstandings mm. I had. So that's been really good. Oh, happy to uh, help. Are there any final thoughts, any final words before we wrap up? No, um, like, yeah, if I'd, I'd encourage everyone to, like, play around with it. Uh, obviously, I think... It's an interesting technology. Uh, I think it's going to be around for a long time, um, but in its current form, hard to say. I, I, I would, gotcha. I would probably say I'm confident that as we know crypto today is probably not what we're going to see in the future. Yeah, this yeah. is sort of the first building block towards yeah you know, something uh, that that will become widespread. Terrific. No, Dale, I really appreciate it because yeah, we've often talked about this, uh, Gene and I, and uh, it, we we have fumbled in the dark somewhat, <laughs> and have been looking forward to the time where we can get somebody on and talk in depth um, as we have done today. So yeah, I'm, I really enjoyed that and got a lot from it. So thank you for coming in. Oh, happy to help. <laughs> okay, Dave Belvedere, thanks so much for your time. Thanks. Righto, thanks for listening to this episode of Economics Explored. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. You can send me an email via contact at economicsexplored.com or a voicemail via SpeakPipe. You can find the link in the show notes. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd be grateful if you could tell anyone you think would be interested about it. Word of mouth is one of the main ways that people learn about the show. Finally, if your podcasting app lets you, then please write a review and leave a rating. Thanks for listening. I hope you can join me again next week. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. 
For more content like this, or to begin your own podcasting journey, head on over to obsidian-productions.com.